Cutting through an overload of information to get to the heart of the story. This is The Point. Who's doing well, who's not? As we wrap up the year 2023, let's take stock of the state of the world's economy. Both the International Monetary Fund, or IMF, and the World Bank are predicting global economic growth for this year to stand at 3%. That's well below the historical average of 3.8% achieved during the year 2000 to 2019. The IMF said in an October report that the global economy is limping along, not sprinting. As for the coming year, expectations are modest, with both institutions forecasting the same rate at this year. As for China, its economy grew by 5.2% for the first three quarters of this year, but is facing complex and severe internal and external environment, to borrow the words from the spokesperson of China's National Bureau of Statistics. The IMF and World Bank predict China's growth to slow to around 4.5% next year. And how is all that impacting your life? Welcome to a special year-end edition of The Point with me, Li Xin, coming to you from Beijing. I'm pleased to be joined from the Chinese capital by Wang Huiyao, founder and president of the think tank Center for China and Globalization, also vice chairman of the China Association for International Economic Cooperation under China's Ministry of Commerce. From Henderson, Nevada in the U.S. by William Lee, chief economist and executive director at Milken Institute. And from Portland, Oregon in the U.S. by Professor Liang Yen, Kremer Chair Professor of Economics at William Met University. The warmest welcome to all of you and a happy holiday season. First of all, let's take a look at the, the state of the world economy. Earlier this month, I talked to Yu Kong Huang, who is a senior fellow of the Asia program at Carnegie Endowment for International Peace, and who is also former chief representative of World Bank in China. Here's what he told me about his understanding of world economic performance for 2023. We're part of an integrated world. Developed countries are responsible for a much larger share their prospects have been declining steadily over the past year. They've been hit by inflation in many countries. Uh, Europe has suffered a lot from the fact that the war in Ukraine has cut off energy supplies, raised commodities. Trade has become more difficult. Investment levels have stagnated. Japan has not been able to get out of its doldrums. The U.S. is doing better than the others, but even others, or even most market observers predict that the American economy is going to slow down, and inflation is still a big issue. So, Mr. Wang, let me go to you first. Do you agree with his uh, diagnosis of the world economy? And if so, what explains the sluggishness of the world's economy? Thank you, Liu Xin. And uh, I think what uh, Yukon has described is, uh, is uh, you know, largely correct, of course. And uh, basically, we've been seeing, uh, uh, you know, 2023 and uh, starting from 2022, of course, with this geopolitical, you know, war going on. And uh, now we added the uh, you know, Middle East crisis to that. So the uncertainty and uh, and rivalry, the strategy of uh, of both U.S. Uh, and EU on China, that has a huge impact on the global economy, which I think also has dampened the uh, business, uh, uh, you know, incentivized, you know, incentive to to to, to invest. But I, I think uh, you know what we can see is that of course the whole world is slowing down, but but the U.S. because of the uh, this. Uh, geopolitical uh, uh, attention, uh, a lot of uh, uh, hard money actually flew, 
you know, invested into the U.S. Uh, stock market and, and its economy. So I think that, you know, U.S. dollar benefit from that. But I think on the other hand, China is still the, the center of the supply chain and, uh, and uh, you know, production chain. And of course, also value chain. We see uh, things still moving after China lifted the COVID uh, restriction. Things are quickly back to, to normal. And so with some, of course, with some overcoming difficulties, but I expect China would uh, certainly reach its target of NPC set at the beginning of the 5%. Mm. But, uh, you know, next year we see some stability of continue this mm. momentum. Mm -hmm. Mr. Lee, if you were to use one word to describe the world economy, what would it be? Sluggish and in the doldrums. And I think one of the reasons why it's sluggish and in the doldrums is because the world is trying to fight inflation. Uh, and the conventional uh, theory says you get rid of inflation by reducing demand because demand exceeds supply. And so every economy uh, in the West has been trying to reduce domestic demand in order to contain inflation. Um, unfortunately, inflation came about because in that COVID period, so much stimulus was pumped into the economy, especially in the United States, that um, people just wanted to buy a lot of stuff that wasn't available. So, so in, in that sense, I agree that the geopolitical tensions have added to the strains and caused people to, to, to worry about, um, about what to do in the future. But certainly the reason for the current sluggishness is because the global economies, uh, the fiscal authorities, monetary authorities are trying to get rid of inflation. And the conventional wisdom is you get rid of inflation by reducing demand. Mm. Professor Liang, your take on the pulse of the world economy. I mean, just now, Mr. Lee talked about inflation in the uh, Western economies. However, in China, it's a different set of problem. And China's share of global growth is also much bigger than the Western shares combined. Yeah, absolutely. Good to talk to you, Liu Xing. So I think for the world economy, uh, yes, uh, there has been high inflation, but I think that's largely due to supply side disruptions. Uh, that's due to COVID um, and other supply side shocks, for example, the slowdown in automobile production and semiconductor production, um, that has some impact on the supply side. Um, and also, of course, the energy is due to war um, and so on. So I think the problem with fighting inflation was hiking interest rates for the one, uh, it, it's because it, it, the problem is is that you still see strong, you know, labor market, you're still seeing strong real wage growth, and yet inflation has come down. So I think that largely says that, you know, a lot of the supply side factors that attributed to inflation has now eased. But that said, I think, you know, with high interest rates now in the United States, you know, the highest since 22, uh, in 22 years, that will start to weigh on the economy. Um, you see, you start to see the mortgage rates. Um, people are, you know, used to be locked in the 4%. Now they're going to pay 7% for the 30 year mortgage rates. And then you're also seeing consumer credit is increasing, uh, surpassing 1 trillion uh, US dollars for the US households. So I think there are still a lot of headwinds for the US economy. And as for China, as you, you're, you're totally right, the Chinese economy is very large in terms of size and it has contributed to over one third of the global growth in the past you know, decades. But I think you know, China's economy are also having challenges, especially you know, the weak demand and also some sectors over capacity and also uh, relatively subsumed uh, expectations. So I think overall, um, this year, the economy has modeled through, uh, but with a lot of divergences. Mm. Uh, but I think, you know, the predictions for next year really also depends a lot on the, each country's policies and also the war, uh, the two regional wars. Mm. Um, so I think, you know, we're not out of the woods. Mm. Let's take a closer look at the share of different economies to the global growth that's uh, predicted by the IMF, for instance, uh, for the year 2023. China is projected to have contributed 35%. The Western 
hemisphere as a whole is projected to uh, have contributed 14%, while Europe about half of that, 7%. Mr. Wong, how do you look at that trajectory uh, besides the overall health of the economy, but also the structure, it seems, of global economic growth is also shifting and tilting towards not just China, but also India, other developing and emerging economies? Yeah, absolutely. I think that, uh, you know, the uh, the global uh, economy actually now is starting to realize that, you know, China is, is, is still a growth engine, you know, to, to be exact. For example, China has launched so many a global economy platform. You had the Shanghai Import Expo, we had the Beijing Service Expo, we had also in Hangzhou Digital Trade Expo, and we just recently had the Supply Chain Expo. So China is building all those world platforms for the global business. This year, one of the focus has been the vitality of the Chinese economy. Since the beginning of this year, China's economy uh, robustly rebounded because of the lifting of COVID restrictions. But later in the year, the second half and the third, uh, especially the third quarter, people were kind of concerned whether that kind of rebound can be sustained. Uh, as early as in April 2023, I had an interview with Ambassador Fu Tsong, head of Chinese mission to the EU. Let's take a look at what he said about the prospect of China's economic growth for 2023. The Chinese economy is staging a robust rebound. This actually will mean a lot of economic opportunities for many countries, including European countries. Mr. Li, let me go to you. Um, as the IMF concluded that uh, China's economic growth for this year will be around 5.4%. That's against 3% last year. So what does that mean for China as the world's second largest economy? Well, the IMF was rightly to take into account the fiscal policy measures that have been put in place in the post-COVID era for China that boosted China's growth rate in the third quarter. And, and I, I think they were quite right that there is going to be a, quite a boost, but it's all on the supply side. China has d done a phenomenal job, actually, of being the supply side for the world, not just China. Its, it's production is probably the most efficient in the world and, and uh, has really done tremendous amounts of, of progress in trying to get to the frontier of where production is in, in almost all sectors. One of the problems that we in the West look at China and we, we worry about is whether there's sufficient demand within China to take up the excess supply that's being generated. Uh, and a lot of income uncertainty because certain uh, foreign companies have, have um, stopped coming into China as rapidly as they have before. Mm. A lot of foreign capital has been diverted to other countries in Asia. And so looking forward, one of the things that uh, Western investors are worried about is whether the Chinese domestic market will be able to grow as it has in the past. Mm. And, and that really is the source of dampening that we, uh, we want to address uh, for policymakers. Mm -hmm. Professor Liang, uh, in a major economic work meeting in mid-December 2023, it said that to further revive the economy, China still has to overcome some difficulties and challenges, including lack of effective demand, overcapacity in some sectors, lackluster social expectations, certain risks and hidden problems, bottlenecks in the domestic circulation, as well as rising complexity, severity and uncertainty of the external environment. But the meeting also emphasized that overall favorable conditions outweigh unfavorable factors in China's development and the fundamental trend of economic recovery and long-term positive outlook has not changed, urging stronger confidence. So uh, what do these messages tell to you about the 
difficulties or the understanding of the difficulties China's economy is faced by China's leadership and also what explains possibly the lack of confidence? Yeah, I think this is a great summation of the long-term challenges of the Chinese economy. I think in the short term, the economy is still battling with the real estate sector adjustments and also, you know, really the long-term scarring of, of the COVID. So I think the lack of confidence both comes from the job prospect and also the income growth. Um, as well as, you know, this real estate sort of uh, readjustment because 70% of the household's wealth is in the real estate sector. So when the real estate sector is not doing well, that would dampen the confidence of the consumers. But I think, again, I agree with Professor Huang um, that there are a lot of long-term advantages of the Chinese economy. It remains to be very innovative and dynamic. Uh, with right now, we're seeing a lot of industrial upgrading. A lot of the you know, bank loans and credit is going to the industrial sector, not necessarily to generate more output, but really trying to get more value added, you know, and also trying to automate a system to you know, put an AI system to also uh, increase the sort of technological components of, our, of the industrial output. So I think all these, um, and uh, not to mention, you know, the capital that is very abundant, uh, you know, bank loans, bank credits, and also a lot of private investors are investing outside of the real estate sector. Uh, we also have, you know, huge human capital, 12 million college graduates, you know, to 2025, China is going to graduate 77,000 STEM students compared to 50,000 in the United States. So I think in the long term, when you look at labor or capital, uh, human capital, uh, and also physical capital and uh, finance capital, I think China are with a very good prospect. But in the short term, I do agree with this weak demand, which I think it's also good to look at the Central Economic Work Conference that talked about, you know, we need to strengthen the demand. We need to try to boost the uh, virtual cycle between consumption and investment. So we need mm -hmm. to have the high consumption growth to validate investment. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, we need to upgrade our investment. So I think that is really the right uh, measure to push the economy forward. Okay. Mr. Wang, how do you look at the emphasis on the lack of confidence and also the severity and complexity of the external economy, of the external environment for China's economic growth? Do you think China may be able to sustain more or less 5% growth for next year? Well, I, I think it's, uh, it's quite possible. It depends on also how, how, how we can really uh, continue to give all the supply demand, uh, stimulus. Of course, China the economy, I mean, uh, let's be frank, you know, has just recovered from a three years lockdown period, which is the, the largest lockdown uh, uh, that uh, of a 1.4 billion, which a lot of uh, economic activity has been really uh, slowed and, and people need time to recover. For example, I was quite encouraged to see the tourism uh, particular domestic tourism recovered. You know, from the very beginning of this year, the airport was still very, not very busy, but now if you go to the airport, it's, it's so cra <laughs> crowded now. Mm. So, so, and also international uh, tourism is picking up. But also, I think on the real estate side, that's, that's another thing. I think China needs urbanization. China government uh, still have a lot of the tools in its toolbox. For example, we have a household land of 300 million migrant workers. I mean, that, if that household land has been, you know, privatized or been allowed to, to transact, People from urban will go to buy, and people from 300 million migrant workers will sell their household land and put their down payment in the, in the urban center to buy their apartments uh, secondhand. And, and that will greatly stimulate the Chinese uh, real estate market for another 10, 20 years. Boom. Mm. So I think China now needs more uh, you know, innovative policies. Like in the 80s, we have a contracting system. In the 90s, we have a urban housing uh, reform. In the 20s, we joined the WTO. 
So, I mean, every decade we have a big revolutionary policy. I think now it's time for China to have some kind of policy like that for 300 million migrant workers that after solving 800 million uh, extreme poverty lifting, we now need to solve the 300 million migrant workers to really, uh, you know, release their purchasing power and mm. verbalization of the real happening. And that would be, right. I think, great policy to have. Yeah. While trying to lift people's uh, living standards at home, China has been undertaking this huge initiative that's called the Belt and Road over the past decade. And uh, I talked to Amor Musa, former Secretary General of the League of Arab League in uh, early 2023 to get his take on China's prospect of cooperation with uh, other developing countries or countries in the global south in terms of development. Let's listen. Uh, relations are moving and uh, trade and cooperation are improving, progressing. I see a, a, a very a brighter future for relations economic relations uh, and relations cooperation in so many fields between uh, China and African countries, China and uh, Arab countries. I here would uh, underline the importance we in the Arab world has uh, given to the major initiative led by China, bringing Saudi Arabia and uh, Iran together Geopolitical relations aside, on the economic side, Mr. Lee, on the economic and trade front, how do you look at the importance of uh, economic cooperation between China and other developing countries and emerging markets for 2023? And where is that going for 2024? Well, China became the second largest economy in the world because in part of globalization, uh, China became such an efficient producer that uh, all the global supply chains focused in and, and sort of found themselves going through China. And I think globalization going forward is starting to reshape itself. People are realizing that they would like to diversify supply chains. There's more replicating of, of local supply chains that people want to have because of the difficulties that we encountered in COVID. So I think the globalization stage two, China is doing its part in trying to reshape that by doing the Belt and Road strategy of focusing in on a network of countries that it can trade with, especially among the emerging market countries where it can offer technology and infrastructure help, and at the same time, develop these, these markets for China's own exports. So I think China is doing a very smart move in terms of adapting to how the global supply chains are reshaping themselves in the post-COVID era. So, and, and that's will be very important in boosting China's own domestic economy, because as there are more jobs produced to service these new uh, new markets, the income security and the, the kind of wealth that's generated will help to secure the lack of demand that we currently see in the short run. In terms of uh, the benefits to this growth, Mr. Lee, do you also see emerging economies in general benefiting from closer economic integration with China or interaction with China. For instance, the emerging economies for uh, 2023 and 2024, as projected by the MF, is expected to grow at 4%, whereas the advanced economies only is looking at 1.5% or 1.4% for next year. Well, we at the Milken Institute have always focused on where the young population and population growth centers are. And, and right now, 
Uh, if you look at uh, Africa, in China we have an aging population, but in Africa we have a young and growing population. So, so these are the new markets, and, and integrating into where the centers of growth will be will be the the right strategy for for China as well as the the West. And, but China has really taken, I think, a lot of uh, very strong steps to try to develop these emerging markets, and it'll be a very integral part of its future. Mm. I think one of the things that we have to remember, though, is that as we become more regionalized and we have Spheres of influence in different parts of the world. It's important to also remember that the, the the spheres of influence also have to trade among themselves, de-risking or or disconnecting from the other growth centers in Europe and in the United States would be a serious mistake if you would just focus on the Asian growth center. And I think the policies going forward will have to set up a trade framework where we can take advantage of regional growth centers mm. as well as. Inter-regional growth centers. Absolutely. Well, I think on the Chinese policymakers' uh, side, definitely they want to trade with the world, basically. And uh, actually, one of the very important aspect for the year 2023 has been the export of uh, new energy cars from China. That number reached one million. It's an increase of over 80 percent year on year. Chinese investors are also building EV vehicles, meaning electric vehicles. Overseas, this past November, I visited a such a workshop in California that's invested by the Chinese company BYD, and I talked to Stephen Gao, senior project manager of BYD North America. The products we are building here are the green technology-based uh, zero-emission buses. Okay. So, um, which is still a little bit of new technology for the market. So, we we do have our training programs basically help all the new hires to get familiar with our product, get familiar with the production process and the trend. Professor Liang, how do you look at the uh, future trend? China has been very heavy on new energy, new energy production and uh, new energy vehicles and exporting in large volume, especially in the year 2023. What does that mean for the future and for the developed economies that are importing a huge chunk of this? Right. I think developing green technologies is very important. It's sort of one stone hits two birds. One is about sustainable development and the other one, of course, is about innovation and productivity growth. So I think it's very important for China to continue to leverage on the advantages that it has developed over, you know, new energy vehicles. And that could go into not just, you know, passenger cars, but also electric buses or even electric boats and electric airplanes um, in the future. So I think China will continue to double down on, you know, this new energy and new technology, the green technology development. And I think that's very important. But going back to the question about the inhospitable, you know, global environment, I think on the one hand, there is a substitute, you know, global demand um, due to, you know, inflation fighting interest rate hike that reduced, you know, demand around the world. Um, but also, you know, the U.S.'s uh, strategies of, on the one hand, there is the continuous uh, diplomatic engagement, but on the other hand, it's the risking, right? So the ban of high-tech uh, exports to the United to, to China, um, also the French shoring and, and, and reshoring. So I think, you know, um, the, you, you, uh, the EU are also uh, working on the anti-subsidy uh, probe in China's uh, new uh, new energy right. vehicles. So I think, you know, the global environment is not very conducive, so to speak, um, to these kinds of uh, China's strategy of you know, promoting uh, sustainable growth or uh, new energy um, to these advanced countries. But that said, I think, you know, developing countries are really still having the big, you know, markets for China. And China is also diversifying its own supply chain, you know, investing in uh, Southeast Asia, investing in Mexico. Um, 
um, to circumvent some of these, uh, you know, uh, restrictions. Um, so I think, again, I, I, I think that advanced countries' strategies are really um, doing harm to their own economy, but also to the global transition mm. to the more sustainable yeah. future. Let's dig a little bit deeper as, as we are about to wrap up. And uh, Mr. Wang, I'm going to go to you for this question. Uh, I talked to Dilma Rousseff, president of the New Development Bank, which is also uh, what some people call the BRICS Bank in late May, and she had this to say about the future of uh, currency arrangement. We don't think the absolute privilege of settling all trades in U.S. dollars or euros is right. We need to use our own currencies in strengthening the foundation of trade and investment in our countries. So she was talking about um, the New Development Bank doesn't think that the absolute privilege of selling or doing all trade in US dollar Europe is right. He said we need to use our own currencies. Of course, she's talking about uh, the new emerging economies and uh, especially the BRICS. Mr. Wang, what are we seeing in terms of the undercurrent, the shifting of the undercurrent in the global economic order? Are we seeing something profound uh, in shaping? Absolutely. I, I think we're probably seeing a new paradigm shift because uh, the global south and uh, BRICS countries, and particularly uh, China, India, and all those uh, 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 global uh, developing countries are really taking uh, a big uh, shares in the global economy. And also this middle powers, you know, we see Turkey, Indonesia, and Mexico, and you know, all those countries are, are adding up. And uh, so that really helps. You see, actually, uh, you know, the, the, you know, BRICS has been doubled uh, this time uh, of this year, and there's another 20, 30 countries lined up because they want to. They don't want to pick sides. They want to really pick the economic benefit side of China, where China is the biggest economy in the, in the BRICS countries, which is five times, six times larger than India economy. So that's where the benefit, where along goes with the uh, Belt and Road, and with all those new alternative of, of course, you mentioned payment of the of the new development bank. Uh, that is also shaping. So that, that does actually, if they pushed by the U.S.-led Western world, I mean, the, the BRICS and, and China will have to find a, a, a new solution. So, so I think the bottom line is we still have to collaborate, but they, ha they, they have to really look at this new emerging uh, strong global south on the stage of the world, and China is playing a key uh, instrument in, in that process. All right. Well, that was a wrap up of the year 2003 in terms of economy and uh, glimpse into the future for 2024. Let's keep our eyes open to see what happens uh, in that very important year. Many thanks to Wang Hui Yao, William Lee and Professor Liang Yen joining us from different parts of the world for this special year end edition of The Point with me, Liu Xin. On behalf of the whole team, we'd like to wish you a great holiday season and a happy new year. As usual, you can follow me on Facebook and Twitter using the handle Lushin in Beijing. You've got the point.